All right, well, if you guys have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be looking at Luke 9, 28 through 36. If you were here uh, last week, we started this mini-series on the sovereignty of God. We talked about how the Lord is sovereign over every aspect of creation, from the, the smallest microscopic particle to the largest universe or galaxy of universes that you can possibly think of, that there's nothing outside of, of God's plan. And like the old kid's song says, you know, he's got more, well, he's got the whole world in his hand, but so much more than that, he's got everything in his hand. So we talked about how God's sovereignty is one of the greatest comforts that we have as believers, but it also serves as this great motivator for us to do death-defying missions uh, for the sake of the gospel. And so what I was saying is that, you know, if we have a high view of God's sovereignty, that will drive us to reach people that might seem to be unreachable because we know that the gospel cannot fail. We know that God is sovereign, that his purpose will come to pass. And so this morning, we're kind of continuing with this mindset by looking at the authority of Jesus and how basically, while we might think that those two connect, it's just an important doctrine for us to remember that Jesus has absolute authority over all things. Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed within the last year, I mean, I certainly have, or even the last week, is that mankind, we ultimately have authority issues, right? Like it's hardwired into us to rebel against authority because we don't like being told what we can and can't do. We don't like the idea of, of somebody being over us or saying we can do this or do that. And I've noticed this, especially this past year with, with the election and with, with all of these, um, you know, restrictions coming out, even the newest restrictions that just came out of so many people being like, well, who is this person to say that I have to live this way? Or who is this authority that says I have to wear a mask or here, or I have to do this, they can't tell me I can do this, that, and all the other. And basically what this comes down to is that we have this problem with authority, right? Like we have this big issue of people telling us what we can and can't do. Like I'm not the only one that's noticed this this past year, right? Like we, we see a lot of authority issues. And so Here's the, uh, here's the problem. The problem with man's authority is that because of sin, man has abused the authority that has been given to them. So we've been hearing very frequently the term abuse of power, right? Like we hear that, I feel like we hear that every day, that someone's abusing the power that's been given to them. And so when we talk about Jesus having absolute authority over all things, naturally people in their sinful state, lost people, they're going to hear that and they're not going to like what they're hearing. Like they're going to cringe at that because they know, like, here's the thing. We view authority in the lens of humanity. Does that make sense? Like, here's the thing. When man's problem is not so much that God exists, believe it or not, nine out of ten Americans will tell you that they believe in God. Not necessarily the God of the Bible, but they'll say that God exists. But the problem is, is that even though there, that a lot of people don't have an issue with saying there's a higher power, the problem is that if God is the God of the Bible, if he is who he says he is, then man is ultimately accountable to God because he is the creator and we are the created. And so when we hear that Jesus has absolute authority over all things, we don't like that idea due to the fact that we have authority, or authority issues. We've seen people abuse authority time and time again. We are viewing the authority of Jesus through the lens of fallen humanity. We're not seeing it as the perfect, complete, just, and righteous authority that he truly 
has. So if we neglect the authority of Christ, the authority of the written word of God, we miss what not only the Bible is about, we miss out what all of God's creation is about. And so uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of my favorite preachers, and he has this really short book that, that's just called Authority. And it's like all of five bucks on Amazon right now. It's 100 pages. You can read it. Uh, if you're going at my pace at like a, in like a day, day and a half, something like that. And what he says is he says that this subject of authority is indeed the great theme of the Bible itself. So if all of the Bible in the Lord, or if all the Bible points to the authority and lordship of Jesus, then it's something that we need to be aware of, don't we? So what we're going to see here in Luke 9 is a, is a moment that testifies to Christ's authority, an authority that has been given to no other. So I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to dive in here to Luke 9, uh, starting at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So what is happening in this moment that is just so significant? I think that if we read this too quickly, we kind of just see this as this heavenly pep talk that Jesus was getting as he was getting ready to go out and accomplish the mission that he was sent, sent to accomplish. But when you really take the time to like look and see what the Gospels are saying, are saying we see this testimony to Christ's authority and how he stands out from everyone else in human history. So there's a lot of things that we could highlight here, but I'm just going to kind of point out some of the, the uh, I guess, the more evident ones that might be a little bit easy to miss. Um, the first thing that is worth pointing out that a lot of people might see as, in, in, as, in, as insignificant is the language that Luke and the other gospel writers use when they're writing this moment. They say that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. Now that on its own doesn't really sound that significant. We know that Jesus in his life would frequently, he would go up to mountains, he would go into gardens, he would go to pray to have that kind of alone time with his heavenly father. Uh, so that doesn't sound that important, but here's what I want us to consider. Notice who he communicates with when he ascends the mountain. As the Lord is being transfigured on this mountain, he speaks to Moses and Elijah. And as we see in verse 35 later on, God the Father. So what, the question is, what does Moses do in Exodus 19? Well, he ascends Mount Sinai. He speaks with God the Father. He receives the law, the Ten Commandments. So when Moses goes to the top of the mountain, what he is receiving is the authority of the written word of God, the law that is written by the Lord on the tablets. We see Moses as a man that goes up on a mountain and speaks to the Lord, but he's not the only one who does this. Elijah himself does it in 1 Kings 19. So if you're not really familiar with what's going on in that, in that moment, uh, this is right after this, this battle between the prophets of Baal 
and Elijah and the Lord, really it's just the Lord and Elijah is just there to kind of heckle him, uh, which is nice. And so uh, there's this moment where Elijah, like, you know, the prophets of Baal, they're, they're taken care of. The Lord is victorious on this mountain. And Elijah, he, he basically just books it to the capital of Israel. Uh, he just runs there because his mind is saying, all right, at this point, uh, the kingdom's going to turn back to Israel. Or this kingdom's going to turn back to the Lord. And so he goes there, but he's met instead with Queen Jezebel basically saying, uh, you're going to die if you come here. If I find you, you are a dead man. So Elijah, he, he just... He, he just runs over here to uh, Samaria, and then he just runs right on back to uh, Mount Horeb, which also goes by the name of Mount Sinai, which is the very same mountain that Moses received his revelation from the Lord. So I think Elijah, he goes there, and what he's expecting is the same exact thing that Moses had in Exodus 19. He's expecting this profound, you know, giant event, because before Moses even went up there, there's this huge display of God's glory in uh, Exodus 18. And so I think that's what Elijah is hoping for. So you probably uh, might recognize the story of this by now. We know that a strong wind blows through the mountains, but the Lord isn't in the wind. We know that there's an earthquake, but the Lord is not in an earthquake. We know that there's this, this thing of fire that comes down, but the Lord isn't in the fire. But instead, there comes that still, small voice, that whisper, that, and it's in that whisper that the Lord reveals himself to Elijah. So once he does that, he gives Elijah the tasks that he is to do. So just as Moses and Elijah ascended mountains to hear the word of the Lord, we see the living word, Jesus Christ, ascend a mountain and speak with these two men. God in the flesh ascended the mountain and looked ahead to things that were to come. So there's something else that is significant of, of why Moses and Elijah are the ones that appear to the Lord. Why not David? Why not Abraham? Why not... Isaiah or Daniel. I mean, these are great men of faith, but why Moses and Elijah specifically? Ultimately, it comes down to what they represent. In Matthew 22, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and he asks him, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Basically, he's asking in a sense of Jesus, the Bible is a ginormous book. Well, back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a ginormous book with all of these laws, all of these things going on. If you had to narrow it down to just one sentence of what is the most important thing in this entire book, what would it be? And Christ's response is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here at verse 40, that's what I want us to notice. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So why is this important for our talk about authority? It comes down to representation, because who represents the law? We often call the law the law of Moses, don't we? And why do we call it the law of Moses? It's because Moses was the one who gave the law from the Lord to the people. So we know that the law of Moses is not just the Ten Commandments. We know that the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, are usually considered the law of Moses. So then we move on to the prophets that he mentions. So who is the prophet that so many verses throughout the Old Testament look ahead to? They look ahead to Elijah. Nowhere in the Bible do you ever see anyone saying, well, when's Isaiah coming back? When's Daniel coming back? When's Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Amos? When are all these prophets coming back? They always look ahead to Elijah. Elijah is considered the prophet, the representative prophet of the Old Testament. So when we look at Malachi 4, uh, verses 4 through 5, the very last book of the Old Testament, this is what the Lord, like basically his last words to his people are, is remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's saying, remember Moses, remember Elijah, the day of the Lord is coming. So what we have at the Mount of Transfiguration is this picture of how Jesus has authority, just as the law of Moses and the, law of the, or the words of the prophets have authority. But Jesus is the living and breathing word of God. Now, one more thing that, Christ, that makes Christ stand out from Moses and Elijah comes down to one word that we see in verse 32. In verse 32, Peter, James, and John, they wake up and they don't just see Jesus. They see Jesus in glory. So when Luke uses the word glory, he doesn't just mean that Jesus is standing out in a crowd. Instead, he's using a Greek word that Jesus' glory is obvious, that he's clearly standing out from all the rest. The word that he is really using here means that as Jesus is standing there, the very manifestation of God is present. God in the flesh is there. He is standing there in honor and splendor and majesty. The disciples are seeing Christ as he is, as the Alpha and the Omega, the one with absolute authority over all things. You see, on that mountain, Moses sees something that is far greater than the promised land. He sees something, Elijah sees something that is far greater than, than winds or fires or earthquakes. The disciples see something far greater than an earthly king establishing his earthly kingdom. They see God over all Jesus glorified, king over everything. The thing about Jesus is that he does not just point us to the glory of God. He is the glory of God. So, for all that believe in Jesus Christ, this is the view that they are going to have for eternity. What we are going to see is a ruling, reigning, glorified Savior. And what Peter, James, and John have experienced here is something that, that our hearts have always longed for. Our hearts are always looking for greatness, and it's in the glory of God that our looking finally finds what it's been searching for. So C.S. Lewis, he has a pretty long quote in his amazing sermon called The Weight of Glory, and I'm just going to share all of it because it's worth mentioning. Here's what, uh, here's what he says. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm, between, or some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desires. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of all, or into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So what Lewis is saying here is that, that like, we have always longed to see something incredible, right? Like we as man, like we're, we're visual creatures. We don't just like hearing about things. We like to see things for ourselves. And so what we're learning here with Lewis is he's saying that the glory that we have heard about, the glory that all of the Bible has pointed to, the glory of the New Testament, this, this grand revelation of Jesus, one day, if we belong to Christ, we are going to see it. Like we know it's there. We know that there's this door, but one day we know that the door is going to be open. And everything that we've heard about, the fullness of what we've heard about, 
we are going to experience for ourselves. One day, we are going to see the glory of the risen Jesus. So as if seeing the glory of Christ was not enough to establish that authority, in verses 34 and 35, we read that there was a cloud that overshadows them and that the Lord himself, God the Father, speaks out of the cloud. In Exodus 13, 21, we read that the Lord went before the people of Israel in a pillar of clouds to lead them. The very presence of God that led the people of Israel to their deliverance comes again to point ahead to an even greater deliverance. The bringer of the first exodus is now here to point ahead to an even greater exodus. The Lord comes in the cloud and he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And you see what God is saying here is he's saying that all of the answers that you have been searching for, for your entire lives are here in front of you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, to go back to him, he summarizes this moment really well when he says this. In other words, the Lord is saying, this is the one to listen to. You are waiting for a word. You are waiting for an answer to your questions. You are seeking a solution to your problems. You've been consulting the philosophers. You have been listening and you have been asking, where can we have final authority? Here is the answer from heaven, from God. Listen to him. Again, you see, marking him out, holding him before us as the last word, the ultimate authority, the one to whom we are to submit, to whom we are to listen. You see, if God the Father, who is sovereign over all things, tells us, hey, stop right now. This is the answer to the problem that you are trying to solve. Don't you think that, that we should stop and listen? Like the God of the universe is not going to share his glory with anyone. He says, look to my son. Listen to him. Here is the answer. Do, so do we realize how important this is? You know how often as, as a youth pastor, you hear so many students looking for fulfillment in so many things, looking for answers in so many things, and they're like, if I can just have this, I'll be happy. If I can just have this, I'll be good. And you hear this, not even just from students, but you hear this from so many people. You hear this, and like here we have God himself saying, here's the answer to the questions. Here's the, here's the X marks the spot. Here's everything that you need to know. And so God's response is this. He's saying, all of your problems, here is the solution. Now, this isn't the, the prosperity gospel mumbo-jumbo approach to it. This is God saying, in this world, you are going to have trouble. But take heart, because right here in the flesh is the one who has overcome the world. On the mountain, the Lord is showing that Jesus is far superior to Moses. He's far more superior than Elijah. No one else in human history has the Lord ever said, this is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. So not only does God the Father establish Christ's authority, Christ himself does it. Have you ever noticed in the Sermon on the Mount just how many times that Jesus says, you have heard it said this way, but I say to you. What Jesus is doing here is he's establishing his authority. He's saying my words have the same authority as the Old Testament scriptures because I am the word made flesh. See, no first century teacher would ever say what Jesus is saying here. If Jesus is not the Son of God, if he is not the absolute authority, he could not say these things. Now, Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament is wrong. He's saying that he's coming to fulfill all that the Old Testament wrote about. Now, no ordinary teacher is going to make these claims. No one in their right minds would ever say this because it would be blasphemous for someone to say that were not God himself to do it. Did you know that in the Bible, depending on your translation, there are about 2,000 times where we read the, the phrase either the Lord said, the Lord spoke, the word of the Lord came, or something like that. And did you know that the majority of those times we see the Lord speaking through prophets? But do you know what the prophets never said on their own? 
Never once does any God-honoring, God-fearing prophet of the Old Testament ever say, but I say to you. They never say that because they didn't have that kind of authority. It was not their word that they were giving, but the word of the Lord. So for Jesus to come onto the scene and say, but I say to you, that is not just an extraordinary claim to the authority, that's an extraordinary claim of his deity. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interprets the law with authority unlike any scribe or teacher would. So when we get to Matthew 7, 28 and 29, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we read something that's really important. We read, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now understand that during the first century, the scribes and the rabbis of that day, they taught, uh, when they would teach the people, they would teach primarily through what older teachers had already taught, or they would teach through the traditions of the elders. So they weren't necessarily ignoring the Bible, they just weren't using it to its fullest potential. I said in the first service, it would be like if you were to teach off of somebody's book report instead of teaching off of the book itself. Um, And that's really what they were doing. They were teaching all these traditions, these man-made traditions, and they weren't true teachers of the word. So all the authority that they had, they received from somebody else or from someone else's traditions. But Jesus was different because he starts teaching directly from Scripture, He doesn't cite any rabbis. He doesn't cite any other scribes or teachers. You don't hear him say, well, Nicodemus said this, and because he said that, that's how it is. Instead, he teaches directly from the word of God. And with authority, he corrects what previous generations had taught and believed. So what gave Jesus the right to do this? We know it's not his education. It wasn't the the teachers that he learned from. It wasn't the people that he hung out with. His authority came solely from being God in the flesh. So if Jesus is God, if he has supreme authority, then what that means is that we are to be obedient to him and to worship him. So if we jump back in to Luke 9 for just a few minutes, Jesus Christ has already firmly established that he is Lord over all. No one can make the claims that he makes, do the things that he did, and not be who he said that he was. So C.S. Lewis, he, uh, he famously said that when it comes to Jesus, we really only have three options, and it was called C.S. Lewis's Trilemma. Either Jesus can be, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. If he is a liar, if that's all Jesus is, is a liar, that doesn't explain the miracles that he did or the empty tomb. He can't be a lunatic because every Pharisee, every person that heard him said, nobody's ever talked like this man. And they weren't saying that because he was like babbling like some sort of strange person, but he was, like we were saying, speaking with authority. He knew what he was doing. He knew his stuff. No one could ever charge him with with being wrong in his interpretation of the word. And so, really, there's only so many options. So, Lewis, the full quote of what he says, I don't have it up here, but I'll, uh, I'll run through it. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he is an egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher because he has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. The only option that we are truly left with is that Jesus is Lord 
overall. And the reason that I bring this up is that when we get to Luke 9.36, we read that after the voice had spoken, the disciples looked up and saw Jesus standing there alone. Only Jesus is there. Jesus doesn't just stand out from everything else in creation. He stands alone as the Savior of the world. So here's what we need to ask today. If you were to close your eyes, hopefully not to fall asleep, but if you were to close your eyes, and when you opened them, all that you had faded away, and the only thing standing there was Jesus, would that be enough for you? Is Jesus Christ alone worth to you far more than anything else in all of creation? All of your family, all of your loved ones, all your possessions, if that was to fade and all you had was Jesus, would that be enough? So here is something we need to ask. Is Jesus Christ alone worth to you far more than anything else? You see, Peter thought that what he wanted was a kingdom on earth that was ran by Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. But what he needed, what you and I truly need above anything else, is Jesus, the Son of God. And I love this way that Mark records this moment in his gospel. He says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I wish that everybody here and in the world would be able to look and see all the success, all the troubles, all the rewards of their lives fade before their eyes and see Christ alone standing before them victorious. That is what we should desire to see. Tim Keller, he wrote this. He said, Moses is gone Elijah is gone, and Jesus is the bridge over the gap between God and humanity. Jesus is able to give what Elijah couldn't give, what Moses couldn't give, what no one else could ever deliver. Through Jesus, we can cross the gap into the very heart of reality, into the steps of the dance. Jesus is the temple and tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles because he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the ultimate priest to point the way for all priests. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do we believe that all authority in all of creation is in the hands of Jesus? Because what we need to remember is that absolute authority does not come from the White House. It doesn't come from the United Nations. It doesn't come from, from you or me. It doesn't come from anywhere except Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So what does that mean for us today? Here's what I think we need to remember is that um, regardless of if your guy won the election, like our authority ultimately comes from Jesus Christ and that authority is ascending authority. So what this means is like here right now, like it's our opportunity for, you know, being the church to get back to work, right? Like it is time for us to get back into the fight. So don't you think that like in the middle of this global pandemic, in this middle of this constant warring of, of left versus right, you know, this person versus that person, that is the perfect time to point people to Jesus, of being like, hey, like, like here's the thing, I, I see the state of the world, and like, it breaks my heart, because we see real people suffering because of sin, suffering from the fallen nature of the world, and we are living it out. We are seeing it happen. Now, one of the things that I've told the kids uh, so many times on Wednesday night is that basically I'm becoming my mom in the way that I really like true crime shows. And one of the, my absolute favorite ones is Unsolved Mysteries. And I've said that so many times. And there's this problem of like, what we're seeing is real people's stories, right? We're seeing people that are, that are affected by sin and hurt. And there's this one that, was on, uh, that I watched a while back. It involved uh, two kids from the 80s up in Harlem that disappeared. 
like a two-year-old and one that was only a few months old. And it, it, like, it gets me thinking because I feel so bad for these families that have, have lost these children now for, for so many years. And then I start thinking to myself of, you know, back before it was getting dark at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, like I would take Benji to the park. Like what's to say that couldn't happen to me? And I, I feel for them because I had that, that experience because I know what it's like to be a father. I, know what it would, I don't know what it would be like to lose him, but I can imagine. And so like here we are right now. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We know what we have been saved from. We know the horribleness of sin. Doesn't it make sense that we should warn people of that? Like we have this experience. We know the horribleness of the lost. Doesn't that make us want to tell the lost about it? Here's what we can say right now. What we can say to people is like, like what we've learned from, from all of this stuff going on is, hey, your government is going to fail you. Your health is going to fail you. Your money is going to fail you. But let me tell you the one who has absolute authority over all of these things. The one who has all these things in his hands, who possesses the power to bring life from the dead. See, what we need to remember is Ephesians 1. Paul speaks of Christ. He says that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ has tasked us with a work to be done. Jesus does not say that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and vote Republican. Therefore go and only do this or that. No, instead what he says is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So there's our challenge. It is time for some, like here's the thing, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, it is time for us to get off of the bench and get into the game, right? Like no football player wants to spend their entire career on the bench. No quarterback in his right mind wants to be Tom Brady's backup. Because Tom Brady, I am convinced, he's, that man's going to play till he's 90 years old. And he's still going to get like 15 touchdowns in a season at the age of like 93. No, they want to get into the game. They want to get into the fight. So we as Christians, the authority has been given to us by the one who has all authority for us to go and get into the battle. And it's not just the fight between you know, right versus left or, or, or this person or that person or this party and that party, but it's the battle between darkness and light. The worst thing that we can do as followers of Christ is to spend our entire lives sitting on the bench and not getting into the battle. Like, here's the thing. Some of you may have been coming for years, but you have done nothing to make any change in the kingdom of God. It is time, if you are a follower of Jesus, to get into the battle. It is time to make the difference in the kingdom of God. Don't spend your entire life as a follower of Jesus just watching the world move and revolve around you. Get into the fight. So I don't, cannot think of any better way to end the discussion on the authority of Jesus besides just reading Hebrews 1, 1 through 13. And so what I'm, I want you all to do is really just even just close your eyes like we were saying. See Jesus standing there alone. Listen to how the word of God describes our Savior. I'm going to read these verses and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship the God that has absolute authority over all things. So let's close our eyes and I'll go ahead and read. Here's what the Lord says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Let's pray. Lord, we know as your church that you have given us a task. You have given us a mission. You have given us a work to accomplish. Lord, I just pray that we feel the strength and power that comes through you. Let us go out. Let us make a difference in this world, knowing that the authority that you have is ascending authority. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.